Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Leadership Drip. And Jeff, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Have you ever wanted to have a redo? <laughs> Most of my life. Most of my life, I want to redo. Okay. okay, so today I get the rare opportunity to redo something. What do you get to redo? I get to redo the introduction of our guest today. Now, here's the story. Okay. All right. Recently, I was co-hosting a uh, Christian Colleges and Universities, Council for Christian Colleges and Universities conference. Okay. That's a lot of C's. That's a lot of C's. That's why I tongue twisted it, right? Yeah. But I got to introduce this speaker. Now, this this person has been to Lee. I know this dude. Wow. He's a great dude. So you you really set your foot in your mouth? I butchered the introduction. So let's do it again. Let's do it again. Take a deep breath. Let's do it again. Let's go again. Trial right. two. We're going to do it. Okay. Hey, everybody. Uh, we're so excited. Seriously. Uh, we have Justin Gibney with us today. He is the co-founder of the End Campaign. He's an attorney. He's a political strategist based out of the Atlanta area. Uh, he has served as a candidate uh, for the Democratic National Convention, and he is operating in so many different realms and worlds having these amazing conversations, but his most recent book, uh, Compassion and Conviction is out. And I encourage you to get that book and read it. It's fantastic. And uh, he's also the co-host of the Church Politics Podcast. So Justin, welcome back, bro. It's so welcome. good to see you again. Cool, man. You you missed uh, pronounce my name, but it's all good. Oh, he did it again. Justin. Nah, I'm just messing with you. Okay, okay. <laughs> bro, you can't do that to me. Yeah, bro, I'm like, Thank you, Justin. Thank you. <laughs> That that was cruel. That was, that was cruel. Awesome. That was awesome. But yeah. it's cruel. That's a, I'm already like I'm like now I'm panic stricken. Like got the sweats going it's on. Also, I got, well, that's probably from lunch. So 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 I had to do a little research, but I found deep in the archives that you are a Vanderbilt Commodore, played right. some football. Yeah. Uh, actually, the the Vanderbilt Commodores spoke very highly of your football career. Said you were quite the standout. Um, we had a guy by the name of Derwin Gray on our show. Do you know Pastor Derwin? Yeah, sure. So the question really I want to start with is, can you outrun the evangelism linebacker? That's a good question. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm way past my, my running years like that. So uh, I don't know, man, that, that I could only guess, man. I heard he was pretty serious. So, Oh, listen, he is very, he's serious. very intense. He's very intense. Pastor yeah. Derwin is very intense. So I, my follow-up question is the Vanderbilt one is because I love Nashville. How did you not go to the pancake pantry every morning of your life when you were there? Anytime. Well, let me tell you this. Anytime I'm back in Nashville, I always go there. And I went there quite often uh, while I was there. But best pancakes in the nation, for sure. Hey, by far the best pancakes. I have not partaken of the pancake. Road trip. We're road trip right now. Okay. After this. Right. Well, we got two recorded we got two. today. So tomorrow we road tomorrow, trip to Nashville. Tomorrow we road trip. All right. Very cool. Hey, uh, man, you went to law school, which... Um, you know, I think you might be one of the first attorneys that we've had on the I, show. I think so. Um, so I, I actually started off in law school and ended up not completing it because I didn't like the practice of law. But I would love to know sort of what drove you personally into the study of law. May, and if that is that what kind of kicked off sort of your career in this church politics conversation? Yeah, I mean, outside of Providence, I think uh, it was you know, my dad and his father always, my dad used to tell me that, you know, his father always wanted to go to law school and be a lawyer. He always wanted to go, but didn't, didn't quite have the opportunity to do it. And so from a very early age, it was just something I knew I was going to do. I, I never really even questioned it. 
so from when I remember, that's what I always said I was going to do. I was going to go to law school. I was going to be an attorney. Um, And I think, you know, in what I'm doing now, it's very helpful. I think, you know, the skills that I got from from law school and from practicing law have been very helpful. But yeah, it was just an assumption that I went with. And I'm I'm glad that, uh, you know, that it, it worked out that way. So how long, Justin, did you practice law before shifting into the and campaign? I practiced law for about 10 years. So I still practice. I mean, I have my, okay. you know, I'm licensed and all that stuff. And I do mostly I'll do pro bono stuff for folks in the church or in the community. Uh, but I practiced for for 10 years. Okay. Oh, wow. Very awesome. cool. Go I was just gonna say what what now what specific areas were you practicing in? What do you practice in as far as I mean, the law is like vast. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. family law, there's all kinds of different areas, but what sort of specific area were you drawn to in that in that kind of field? Well, first, I'll be honest, I was just kind of drawn to the money. So at first I was doing medical malpractice defense, <laughs> Amen. which was probably wasn't what uh, I was, uh, you know, necessarily looking to do. But that's what, where I got the opportunity. So I did that for a while. But then once I got into politics, I ended up working in the uh, the mayor's office, uh, the, the legal uh, group in the mayor's office of the, the for the city. Um, did that for for a long time, worked at the Atlanta Development Authority. So a lot of government stuff, tax allocation districts. Uh, transact. So I went from kind of litigation to more transactional stuff. Gotcha. Excellent. Well, a lot of people don't know what the AND campaign is. And yeah, you spell it A-N-D, uh, the AND campaign. It's a fantastic organization based out of Atlanta, uh, which Justin is the co-founder of. And they're doing some incredible work in this area of faith and politics, uh, church and politics. So uh, Justin, kind of give us a 30-second commercial on what the AND campaign is what you guys are doing right now, how you're empowering believers to engage healthily sort of in this conversation of politics and church. Sure. The, the AND campaign is a Christian civic organization uh, that really wants to assert um, the biblical faith back into the uh, political arena. Uh, and so one of the number one thing we try to do is raise civic literacy among Christians. We want Christians to understand the process so that they can engage more effectively but we also want to help them apply their values to the issues of the day in a better way. Uh, too often, we've allowed our political affiliation to become religious in nature. We've created this false dichotomy between social justice and moral order, uh, between kind of love and truth. Mm. And the AND campaign says, no, 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 you don't choose between love and truth. You don't choose between social justice and moral order. Those things go together for the Christian. So in in insofar as your political party or your ideological tribe makes you forces you to make that false choice. Uh, you have to you have to challenge it. You have to push back. Uh, and so we want Christians to be Christian first, and whatever else uh, should be secondary. Gotcha. So yeah. when it comes to civic responsibility, uh, then I, I think a lot of um, young believers, a lot of young adults out there, they they really want to know: Are they required to participate in their civic responsibility? Is that a God-ordained action? Is it okay to withdraw or abstain from civic responsibility? And what does that say for a young believer? Because I think the political conversation dominates so much of the culture, positively and negatively, obviously. Um, as, as young believers or as believers in general, we really wonder what our role is in terms of engaging in the political structure. Doesn't matter what the party or the affiliation, but do you see us biblically sort of having the necessity to engage civically, is that our, is that our Christian responsibility? 
Well, I, I'll say it this way. I think the political arena gives us a robust opportunity to love our neighbors. And so mm. we kind of base this in uh, the Great Commission. If you love your neighbor, you'll be socially concerned about them, right? You would you would want to make sure that they weren't de- denied anything that uh, hurt, you know, human flourishing or and you want to protect their human dignity. It's not the, the politics isn't the only way to do that, but it's a very big opportunity to do that. And so we we would say that you probably aren't a good steward if there's something you can change within your sphere of influence and you ignore it. If there's something you can do to help your neighbor and you don't do that, uh, then I think you could be probably be a better steward of your of, of, of the influence that you've been given or the, you know, the rights that you've been given, the opportunities that God has placed around you. Yeah. Um, now, again, it's not the only way to do it. But I think that Christians should feel an obligation to be engaged, to have a say and to make sure that the the folks around them are not being mistreated. Uh, That's very important. And so we see that with abolitionists in the past. We see it with the civil rights movement and so on. And it's something I think we should all engage in. Yeah, I I feel like the Sadducee story of Jesus. And when I ask this question, Justin, but when you frame the, the love your neighbor, we all have a picture of who our neighbor is. And, and the, the Sadducee or the Pharisee, one of the stories said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes in the story of the Good Samaritan. How are you helping the church see others, the otherness of people as their neighbor? Because sometimes we, we selectively choose who our neighbor is. Um, they look like us, they affiliate like us, they go to our church or whatever. How are you helping the church sort of have a more expanded view and a biblical view of that neighbor? Yeah, I think one of the things is just exposing people to the issues that others are going through. You know, politics, we often walk into it and it's just adversarial. It's just us against them. And if you think of it as a zero sum adversarial game at all times, then you're not going to see the other person as your neighbor. You're just going to see them as your opposition. But I think in the way that if you're really going to apply biblical uh, uh, precepts to it, you need to see everybody first as your neighbor. Now, there may be some people in the way of you helping your neighbor, of you helping others, but yeah. you can't primarily see everyone else who doesn't agree with you on everything as opposition more than you see them as your neighbor. So there's definitely an adversarial uh, component to, to politics, mm-hmm. but that can't be the primary way that Christians see it. And unfortunately, I think our parties, our ideological tribes push us into this very a- adversarial zero sum way of yeah. thinking and we need to we need to break out of that. I mean, you know, there's so many opportunities that we have to help other people. But if we limit our view of politics, if we limit the way that we frame it to partisanship and to these very flawed ideologies, we miss the opportunity to help those that are hurting around us again in our sphere of influence. Right. Uh, there's a limited amount that we can do. But when we come together, we actually can get a lot done. Yeah. So I'm kind of reflecting on the, the Galatians 6, 9 passage, you know, don't grow weary and well-doing, right? And I think that kind of echoes some of what you're saying through this conversation of, um, you know, aligning ourselves with these ideological tribes where there's a zero-sum scenario where um, we can't agree with the other person simply because they're they're on the opposite side. And if we break that down a little bit further, this zero-sum scenario is obviously, especially in, in recent weeks and months and years really played itself out heavily in the local church itself. Forget the larger culture, forget the larger dismantling of uh, Christian and non-Christian culture. I mean, we're talking literally within the context of the local church itself. We've created these zero sum scenarios where, 
it's really difficult for us to come together as a unified body of Christ, pursue clear biblical mandates on human justice, social justice, and these types of things. So um, maybe what are some starting points for us as believers where we can say, hey, okay, we got to peel back some of these layers and start with this Galatians 6, 9 sort of scenario where we can't be weary and well-doing together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get it. Again, I think we just have to start seeing people differently. You hit it on the head. We had pastors that actually were coming up to us. Like I had people fighting in my church after the 2016 election. Like how, how do I prevent this from happening again? After the last election, people, how do I talk to a Christian who voted for the other guy, right? right. Uh, and people are really trying to figure this out. And I think it starts with reading the Bible. Um, look <laughs> at look at how deep. <laughs> deep and simple all at the same time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look at how look at how Jesus treated the the, the tax collector, right. right? Who was the tax collector? The tax collector was somebody who was exploiting their own community, forcing people into you know debt slavery. These were people that nobody wanted to be around. Yeah. You know, whether you want to call them a sellout, whatever you want to call them, Jesus didn't treat them. You know, look at how Jesus treated this person. And if yeah. you can read through that and, and not see that, look, as a recipient of grace, I don't care who you're talking about. You need to have some grace, too. Now, that doesn't mean people never face consequences or they don't need to be punished, you know, in some way by the, the penal system or whatever. But as a Christian, there has to be some level of grace there. There has to be some level of compassion or else you're just the public. You're, you know, you're the, the Pharisee who's looking at the public and like, thank God I'm not, not like him. Right. Uh, and too often we catch ourselves in those positions because we were listening to scoffers. Uh, we have a, in the church politics po podcast, I had an episode where I just talked about scoffers and what that means. And many of the people that we follow on social media, many of the people that we watch on cable news, especially uh, 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 radio on, on radio shows are scoffers, are people who look at others with contempt and disdain. And that is just not the way that a Christian can look at other people. Now, can we say somebody's wrong? Absolutely. Can we correct them? Absolutely. Can we be passionate when we do it? Sure. But there's still, again, a level of grace and compassion that has to be there when we're engaging as Christians. And you just don't see it too often because, as you, as you mentioned, we're following the world. We're reflecting the world and how we treat yeah. people rather than setting a different standard. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you know who he is, but uh, Preston Sprinkle, who was uh, recently here in chapel, spoke on uh, biblical sexuality. And he used this exact same story of Zacchaeus uh, from a slightly different perspective of Zacchaeus being the very, very marginalized of his community. Now, maybe perhaps he put himself there by the nature of his occupation or the choices he made in terms of, you know, fleecing his own people or whatever, you know, despite those things. He was uh, the very individual that you would not want to associate with as a follower of Jesus. And yet, if Jesus precisely said, no, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to your house. Like, I'm coming in your room. <laughs> I'm getting in your face. And of course, the, the result is we know Zacchaeus repents and, and restores and does, does all those things. But uh, it's this particular approach to the political conversation that I think that is, is grossly missing in our pulpits. I don't think it's a sin to preach about politics in the pulpit. You know what I'm saying? But I think our political, um, biblical conversations aren't revolving around parties. They're revolving around issues and approaches and people. So 
Uh, I appreciate the fact that you brought up brought up that story. Is is good. Yeah, good. and so I think Justin, the question I would have, you bring up civic literacy or uh, let me get it right, civic literacy. Yeah, and so what what have you found in your work of this sort of um, because we we live in a, a generation that's biblically illiterate, so we talk about the Good Samaritan and they have no idea what the story is. So where's been the overlap for you in the AND campaign in not only being bringing sort of civic literacy, but also some biblical literacy and understanding to people? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we really try to do is point out how the how and where the Bible really applies to what's going on in, in politics, right? Helping people understand why Christians should be engaged from a biblical yeah. foundation. Everything that we're talking about, we're, we're coming from a biblical foundation and saying, no, so you're, you, you think that you should make these decisions based on what your ideology is telling you. We're telling you should make these decisions based on what the Bible is telling you. So for instance, you can't get through the, the prophets. You can't read through the prophets and not see a very clear justice imperative within, the, within a social context. Uh, you, you can't read through Amos and not realize that he's, that God is threatening of these people, not just because of idol worship, not just because of sexual immorality, but because of partiality in the courts, mm -hmm. because of how people are treating the poor. These things were were, were uh, breaches of covenant, right? I mean, that's the way that they're being presented. And so for us to go into society and say, well, we can talk about abortion, we can talk about religious liberty, but when we talk, start talking about social justice, I don't know if that's biblical, you need to go consult Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah, and then you need to go talk to James, and then you need to see what Jesus says in, in uh, Luke 4.18. This, this is biblical illiteracy within the church, right? We need to make sure that, we're, that we've read through the whole Bible and we start really applying it and understand that sometimes in the past, and even sometimes folks who have been teaching us, didn't apply certain things because of for cultural reasons. And there are some errors there that we need to correct, but we can't correct those errors unless we read the Bible um, and, and are really doing it with an open heart and, and, and letting the Holy Spirit lead us towards where we're supposed to be. It doesn't happen often enough. And we just don't realize how some people misused it in the past. And those things just keep uh, keep moving throughout our culture and, and how we think about scripture. Yeah, that's it's a refreshing take. Yeah. on on being a christian who's trying to engage in this conversation the the biblical stance and being led by the spirit is seemingly on the opposite side of the narrative we've heard for eight 14 20 years now yeah. as as people engaging in it like it's been there's this conversation which is civic or political and there's the biblical conversation and the two shall never meet until your preacher makes a stand on which which politician they're going to support um so i love this idea that the the Bible's informing our responsibility. It's informing our duty. It's informing our, our in some regard, obligation to our neighbor. Mm. Yeah. So uh, for Gen Z, I mean, obviously social justice is a major issue. And as you kind of have engaged and toured across college campuses, I know that you're, you're actively involved in a lot of those things. Um, there, there is also perhaps a stereotypical impression that social justice and local church ministry are not necessarily congruent, right? I don't think that that is historically accurate. I think the church has been historically very much a social justice organization. I mean, just read the book of Acts for crying out loud. I mean, they broke bread together. They shared with each other. They sold all they had to elevate the other, right? Those are social justice conversations. But the 
the cultural, political, socioeconomic sort of uh, wrappings that come with a term like social justice, I think have impeded it. So how are you sort of untying the, uh, the knots that have kept social justice conversations out of the church? Like, what does that look like for you? Well, first, I think the important thing we have to realize is that anything the world touches, it distorts. Mm. So when the, when the world touches marriage, it distorts marriage. Um, when the world touches, you know, different institutions, it's, it is, you know, when the world touches government, it's going to distort that. So just because the world took justice, social justice and distorted it should never lead the Christian not to engage it. Uh, we need to reclaim that word, word and what and what the and campaign says is that the way that you know that your justice is true justice is biblical justice is it has to be in line with moral order too this is where the and campaign comes in if you have a justice that doesn't align with truth or a justice that doesn't align with moral order then it's not biblical justice but at the same time just because there are distorted forms or distorted conce conceptions of social justice doesn't give us an excuse not to engage it at all just because Marxism exists, just because, you know, some of these other things exist doesn't mean that Christians get to stand so far away from justice just to make sure they don't, they don't get near those distortions. No, we have to do it the right way. And I think one of the problems that we have is instead of um, when we see someone that distorts it, we say, yeah, that's bad, but we don't provide an example of what's better and how to do and how to do it in, in a better way. So what we have to understand is this generation coming up is going to is looking for and going to find a conception of justice to follow. Either they can get that conception from the church or they can get that conception from the world. And that's just the decision that we have to make. But if we think that we can just say, oh, that's bad, don't do that, they see past that. And so we have to do it the right way. We have to really make sure that we're following the Bible. But one of the things that I tell people, the young people as well, though, and what they have to understand is that the people who chose not to do justice and the people who did a lot of things wrong when it came to that, that conversation, they weren't doing it because they were biblical, right? Don't run away from orthodoxy because you saw some people being racist. The people who are being racist or denying people's human dignity, they weren't doing that because they were too Christian or that they were following the Bible too closely. They did it because they weren't following the Bible closely enough. Ooh, that's and that's the conversation that we really have to have with young people so they, they, they don't run away from orthodoxy thinking, man, these orthodox people that that made them racist or that made them harsh or that made them unloving. No, not following the Bible made them un unloving. It wasn't because they were too biblical is because they weren't following closely enough to the uh, the great commandment and the Sermon on the Mount and so on, on the Mount and so on. Yeah, that's, 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 a great that's such a unique perspective. It's because we we often in times associate dogmatics i think with holiness or righteousness when we take these really dogmatic stances and in some cases perhaps rightfully so on certain issues we should be dogmatic but typically we associate the dogmatism with 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 that righteousness and that's simply not the case it i love the way you said this it's not the fact it's actually the fact that they're not following the bible close enough right i mean you go back to uh faith open love and the greatest of these is love and it's how we it's how we uh present ourselves not only in truth but also truth in love right so i think i think these are such unique conversations and i think it's such an important point as we talk about this generation that's coming up that that they consider the the fullness of the right. gospel and how it touches every fabric of society yeah and i think the the, the buzzword currently justin in our world is everything's getting canceled 
Um, like we're canceling everything left and right because we disagree with it. And I love the statement you said that we got to talk about how to do it better. How do we inform the young millennials, the Gen Zs on some things to, to not run to cancel something because there may be truth in it, but to do it better? How are you helping communicate that? Yeah. First of all, when you're canceling things just off top, in many cases, it's, it's it, it can be out of self-righteousness and out of a lack of grace. So I don't know about you guys, but I, I was an enemy of God. And if God didn't give up on me and some of the things that I've done, I haven't the right. I don't have the right to give up on anybody. I can't see anybody as uh, irredeemable. That, now, that doesn't mean there's some there aren't some opinions that I need to reject. Right. But I, but I do think we have to keep that in mind and, and how we treat people. Right. Um, making sure that we're having conversations. One of the problems that we have in our society today and why you see cancel culture is because people don't want to have to take the time to persuade other people anymore. Mm. They want to be able to compel and force other people to do things. Persuading takes time. That means I need to understand your sensibilities. That means I need to understand your context and kind of what you're going through in order in order to persuade you. But if I don't want to have to persuade you, I can just set up a whole bunch of rhetorical devices to say, oh, because of how you look, who you are, because of your identity, you don't get to speak off top. So I don't have to listen to you. Or I can set all these different rhetorical devices. You didn't say this right. You didn't use the right word. Now I can cancel you. I don't have to listen to you. These are all ways of not having not having the conversation, not having a debate, just saying, hey, I'm done with you because we don't want to take the time to do that. We'd rather use the, the, the maybe witty but very harsh language that throws people off but gets us applause from our tribe rather than being more artful and thinking through what we have to say in ways that people can actually accept. Uh, and so I think that's a big problem that we have. Our culture has taught us, hey, if they don't agree with you off top, they're, they're idiots and you don't even have to go back and forth with them. Yeah. A Christian can't take that perspective. It's just not how we, we interact. The gospel is not about forcing people to do certain things. It is, a, it is a level of persuasion and being able to talk. I mean, you look at what Paul was doing in Athens in the Agora. He's persuading people. He's going into, you know, Acts 17, he's going into this place where the, uh, the great debaters and all these folks and philosophers are, and he's using the, the Socratic method. Right. I mean, he's going he's talking to them in the way that they understand. And if you don't undertake the time to understand a culture, understand its language, understand its context, then you're not going to be able to persuade them. But you have to have the diligence to do that. Yeah, that's a, I mean, a great point of Paul. He would have had to have studied those things in advance to come into that conversation. And I think that's part of the 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 point that you're making a great point that we don't take the time to understand somebody else. So we just want to eliminate them. And, and that takes a lot of patience. It takes time. It takes discipline. Um, it takes grace-filled conversations, which I don't think we want to have because we can sit behind a device. And, and listen, I love social media, but it's given everybody a microphone and everybody a bullhorn to say whatever they want, to put everybody on blast. I, I mean, I've seen it from politicians to yeah. preachers. You know, they'll tell somebody to take a 15 second clip of a preacher out of context. And all of a sudden that preacher's on blast and they're a heretic or they're this or that. And they never preach right to begin with. And, and, and it's my diatribe. Sorry. But I think the conversation's important. Like, like take time to understand. And I'm just as guilty because I'll read a headline, not see the whole article and I'll be mad about something. Um, so I think it's important to, to under, to take time. And, and really what you're saying, the, to take time to persuade somebody means understanding them. I see that when you're talking about Jesus. He would sit with people and understand their story before he ever said anything. Yeah. 
I think it requires a relational equity I that see. that we're not willing to invest. I mean, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, because because our culture is pushing so hard so fast to get things done in a certain way that we we simply are not willing to invest enough time in the relational equity to make that persuasion possible, right? So if we can't if we can't convert them by force, then then you're canceled. That's that's kind of the approach. So. Uh, let's, let's switch real quick. Cause I definitely want to talk about the book, which is a fantastic book. So, uh, this, you recently uh, wrote this book, compassion and conviction. And, uh, in, in the book, you say Christians must be faithful and thoughtful on how we can choose to wield our influence and political power. How can we do that better than we previously have? So talk to us a little bit about the book and maybe kind of unpack that question. Yeah, I mean, the book Compassion and Conviction lays out the and campaigns framework when we're talking about love and truth, compassion and conviction and, and not and not falling into that false uh, choice between love and truth, between justice and, 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 and moral order. Um, and we need to understand what power is for. Right. You know, we get we get power and we can either wield it like a weapon or we can steward it. Right. What what is what is our purpose in in politics? What what is our identity in politics? I think we really need to understand that. I, I would answer that in, in two ways. I would say number one, we need to protect human dignity. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that people are getting treated by a certain standard, and that just comes from the Imago Day. Because we are made in the image of God, all of us have to be treated by a certain standard, regardless of who we are. And Christians Christians need to be doing that, but we also need to be promoting human flourishing. Right. So those two things are first. We need to be thinking about justice. We need to be thinking about more order because they help with human flourishing. They help us protect human dignity. We can get into the Christian self-interest, the, you know, our our economic self-interest. We don't have to completely ignore those things. But did a just and righteous God put us in this space to do those things first, to put those things ahead of everything else? Right. When you see your makers, he's going to say, man, you did an awful great job protecting yourself. Or is he going to say you did a, you did an excellent job being self-sacrificial and protecting other people? Yeah. Um, what's the faithful response? Now, we know that our works don't save us, but it is indicative of what's written on our hearts. And if people look at Christian politics, what are they going to see is written on our hearts? What are they going to see is our motivations and our identity there in those spaces? And so I just think we can, you know, that we can see politics differently and see it as a tool to be used, see our political parties as a tool to be used and never to be our masters. Too often we allow our political parties, we allow our ideological tribes to be the masters of our public witness. And that's so sad because if you look at how, if you take any of these ideologies to their logical conclusion, they're absurd, Mm -hmm. right? The gospel is so much more profound and so much more dynamic than these ideologies. For us to limit ourselves to to partisanship or these ideologies, it's just sad, but you've got to have the moral imagination to see past what everybody's giving you. You've got to have the moral imagination to order something that's not on the menu. And that's why the end campaign really goes so hard at the people that say, well, just choose a side because you got you got to just choose a side. Yeah, you may have to take positions, but if you just choose a side, what happens when both those sides are wrong? Yeah. Um, do you just move, move forward in being wrong? When I just choose a side, do I have to take everything my party gives me? That's a very, very dangerous thing to say. And the AND campaign has been trying to focus on Christians just doing that a little bit differently. Yeah. 
Justin, how did the church respond, especially in this last election? It felt like that was a very clear thing. Pick a side and take the side wholeheartedly. Like that seemed to be where we were this last presidential campaign. How did the church respond to the, to what you're saying about, hey, stand for people, stand for policies, and you don't have to swallow the pill whole. What has been the church's response to that? Well, it depends. It hasn't been a model. <laughs> I mean, it, depends. it depends who you talk to. I mean, a lot of people were saying, hey, the t- times are too, you know, the, the situation is too uh, drastic. The situation is too consequential. It's it's too urgent for us to be messing around with nuance. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's a terrible way to look at things. Look at politics is always, you know, going to have life or death issues as a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never it's never too urgent or too serious a situation to try to get things right. Um, and I would say that that's exactly what the parties would want us to do to say, okay, I'm going I'm to serve you on this one issue, kind of maybe, or at least give you the rhetoric and you do everything else. I t- and you just go along with everything else I want you to go along with, because if you don't, then you're helping the other guy. And at that yeah. point you're like, well, oh, I must go, go along with everything or else I'm, I'm this traitor or I just don't understand how serious it is. It's a really naive way to look at politics, but you'd be surprised how many people look at it that way. However, a lot of people responded by saying, I like that because it's okay for me to be politically homeless to some extent. Yeah. And this is what we tell people. If you feel that tension, right? If you're in it, we're not, we've never told anybody not to participate in partisan politics. But what we did tell people is like, if you feel a tension, if you're a Democrat like me or Republican, like somebody else in the end campaign, if you feel a tension and you're not completely comfortable with that, that's good. And I think that gave some people, it made them feel okay to say, you know what? it's good that I don't just feel completely comfortable going along with everything the party does. That means that I'm sensing something that's wrong over there. And some, for somebody who does feel completely comfortable, that's where the problem is to not feel homelessness at all, to not feel that you're not, you know, that your ideological tribe is not really your tribe. Right. Um, if, if you don't, if you don't feel some kind of tension there, that's the problem. And so I think a lot of people responded positively and said, you know what, now I feel like I have a home in the and campaign and with and, and other Christians who may choose a party, but they're not gonna, the, the question doesn't end there. Their journey doesn't end there. Their response doesn't end there. There's something bigger that transcends partisanship and ideology. Sign me up. I, yeah. I, I mean, you're echoing the, the, what I felt so much was, was politically homeless. Like there were things on each side. I go, yeah, I can, I can see why that's important. I can see why that's needed. But, but it was almost like, I was a traitor if I didn't choose a certain candidate, especially in the body of Christ. And it just, and I was so mad about most of it. We, we had some conversations <laughs> yeah. off the show about that. Yeah. That it, like my faith was attached to who I chose was like the most ludicrous thing back in November that if I chose this person, I was a strong believer. If I disagreed with him, I was going to hell in a handbasket quicker than Judas himself. I mean, so the political homeless conversation, I think, is one of the most freeing ones for people who are trying to be biblical in their understanding of civics. And I'm, I'm signing me up for the end campaign because I'm yeah. politically homeless yeah. for the most part. Yeah. And one thing I would add to that too, because so many people felt it and understood it. And to also understand this, what we're saying is not be in this, in this mushy middle where you don't make any decisions right. where you just kind of right. sit around and you're, you're paralyzed because, Oh, I don't like either two. Therefore I'm going to do nothing. That's not what we're saying. We're saying you do need to take positions on serious issues, but understand sometimes the position that you take is a position that's different than both sides. 
I right. mean, I can I can point to a lot of issues where both sides got it very, very wrong. And somebody needed to be if somebody actually would have said, no, I disagree with both of you. Maybe we wouldn't have gone down that path. Uh, so so we do want people to understand it's not this mushy. Don't ever come to the decision. You're too high minded to to get in the middle of this back and forth. No, it's saying that those aren't the only two options. And sometimes I do have to push back on that. And I think people appreciated that that yeah. conversation. Yeah, just what I think I think this kind of leads into a conversation maybe for a minute or two here um, when we had uh, Beth Moore on the show. We talked a little bit about Christian nationalism. This is also something that we talked about in the conference recently that you were a part of. And um, and I think it for me personally, it became more evident in this election than any other time in recent modern American history where the idea of the idolatry really of nationalism um, was so rampant. And so um, maybe for a minute, your opinion, how do we get there now that we are sort of on the backside of this election and things have shifted and things perhaps didn't go the way some wanted or whatever, how do we, how do we begin to move forward now with, with that stripped away from so much of what we um, really, my opinion was just idolatrous. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of the Christian nationalism conversation comes from a misunderstanding or a romanticization of American history. Mm. Mm. Um, I'll be the first to say, and I think I said it during the speech I gave, I, I think America has some exceptional things about it. I think if you look at our constitution, if you look at some of the technological innovations we've done, there are some exceptional things about America. But I think that that exceptionalism is is qualified to some extent, too, because you also have slavery and you also have these terrible things that that happen in our in, yeah. in American history. And too many people just don't want to talk about that. I mean, I've been around people who get offended if you bring that up as if it, it was just a blip in American history. It was, oh, well, that just we fell off for a little bit. No, that was the majority of American history. You had you had slaves or you had Jim Crow. That's very serious. Right. And so we have to be able to set, accept that. And when you really look at American history for what it is and in the country, in the history of any country for what it is, do you really want to draw Jesus into that too much? Do you really want to say, we, you know, this, you know, everything was great until these, these progressives started doing this. Not, not really. Now there were some good things we can point out and Christians did some amazing things, including abolition. But when we get to the point where we are putting ourselves above everyone else, every other country, because America is just so close to God and our history has shown that we're so close to God until we started having, you know, uh, till people started talking about gay marriage or something like that, you're missing so much of American history. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so I would say there, there's nothing wrong with having a, a sort of gratitude about your country. There's nothing, nothing wrong with uh, patriotism to say, you know, I care about my country. But when we start saying that this country is chosen all, 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 um, over all others and it has a righteousness throughout its history that others hadn't have and we're fighting on on behalf of God I don't think you can always I don't think you can look at our history look at our policies and, and always say that I don't think you can always say that about anybody um, and so we just need to number one know the history uh, and number two have honest conversations about how we can do better and see where Christianity is moving around in, in other places maybe even more strongly than it is here yeah. yeah, I kind of had a disheartening sort of, I overheard a conversation. This literally happened yesterday when we were talking, this, these individuals were talking about something and I heard, overheard them. It wasn't my place in that moment to step in and correct them. So I did not, but 
the comment was literally this, how many generations have to pass before we can stop talking about the issue of slavery? And it was, I think it's that attitudinal position for so many, I'm going to say it, people, my color, the white people, right? White Christian Americans who take that attitudinal position, who, who are, um, I don't want to say they're not, well, maybe they are just perpetuating the, the conversation and the issues that we're struggling with. But I think that's also a very non-biblical attitude to take, right? Um, on the reflection of history, lamenting in the exile. I mean, just for crying out loud, read Ezekiel, read Jeremiah, read, you know, these, these prophets in exile and, and learn from them because they, they, they through the history and through the pain uh, and the narrative of that history came to a place of repentance and restoration. That was the point of the exile. So I think these are such critical conversations and I, and I love particularly what you're saying about Christian nationalism and, and, and we are not any better than any other nation because every person is made in the image of God, no matter where they're from. Right. So, yeah, I remember, um, I may have mentioned this one other time in, in our recordings. The first time I went out of the country on a mission trip was to Nicaragua. And all these Spanish-speaking, beautiful brown people who love the Lord just overwhelmed me. And there's an old an old Southern gospel song that says, when we all get to heaven, you know that song? Yeah. And I remember coming back and going, my we all changed. Like, because I grew up in a primarily white church and my we all was a bunch of white people who got to heaven. From Waukegan. <laughs> well, <laughs> and so... I think the kingdom is that that we have to have a different we all. Like when we get to heaven, there's going to be people from all over the earth who call Jesus Savior, and we are to be one. And we can't we can't be divided on this. And I love this part, part of the end campaign is that you guys are trying to bring unity to believers around some of these issues. Um, and I want you to help me understand a little bit more. You talked about protecting human dignity, which I think we understand, but promoting human flourishing. What what do you guys mean by human flourishing? I think giving giving people the opportunity to reach their potential, giving folks outside of you opportunities. I mean, if you look around you and everybody who's in leadership and everybody who's successful looks the same way, there may be a problem with that, right? That you might want to look and see what's holding other folks back, unless you just believe that you 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 know your your culture is that much more superior. That's a, that's a problem within itself. But how can we give other people a chance to flourish? and to be innovators and leaders and, and, and making sure that, that we're being deliberate about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, that we understand that there have been disparities that hold people back. And you don't know what somebody's potential is or what they can be if you don't give them, give them a chance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so that's kind of what we mean by human flourishing, letting people get to their potential and, 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 and doing it to glorify God, saying, hey, God made this person in his image I want to see what gifts this person, you know, I want to see this, this person's gifts and give them a chance to get out of maybe the rut they've been put in through historical issues or maybe family issues, whatever it may be, but giving people those opportunities and taking um, some of the, his, you know, some of those historical kind of uh, obstacles out of their way. Are we deliberate about that or, or does it threaten us when we, when we do that? You know, when, when you brought up, uh, Rob, how some people don't want to talk about slavery more. Can we just shut up about that? I think they need to ask themselves, why do you want people to shut up about that? Mm. I think you want people to shut up about that because it, it frustrates your narrative. It makes mm. your narrative a, a little tougher than you would want it to be. And you can't claim that you're, you're, that you're perfect, but that's okay. I don't think any of us need to have narratives that make us faultless. Nobody went up to Jesus and walked away with their narrative intact. And we won't either. 
Uh, but I think when we talk about progressive or conservatism, they don't want anything in the way of those narratives that in many cases, those narratives are fictional and we need to do better. Yeah. Justin, do you think it's because it's so hard for us to live in that tension that you were mentioning earlier or in the ambiguous state of the unknown or dealing with the own narratives and our own historical sort of baggage? Is, is that really what the, the crux is? I mean, is that why it's so hard for us to, to come closer together towards the middle on so many of these issues? Yeah, we think, it, it think it'll make us lesser, right? Again, we have this narr- narrative where we came, we you know, came up with our bootstraps and we did all these things. And that may be part of the truth, right? But there may be another side of the truth that we need to observe uh, also that some people didn't have those, those opportunities and somehow we got in the way of it. I don't think that the historical conversation can be about whose fault it is. That shouldn't be the main objective of when we have those conversations. And that's something that folks coming from my perspective can understand too. It's not just about me being able to point the finger and say, look at you, you know, it's your fault. But as I said before, it doesn't have to be your fault to be your commission. If there's an issue there, it needs to be corrected, but we can't go into these conversations in a posture of self-defense. We got to be willing to examine ourselves in the same way that Jesus made people examine themselves and examine their culture. And when we're afraid to examine our culture, when we're afraid of conversations that test our narrative, we're putting ourselves in a position where we're protecting ourselves from truth. We're protecting ourselves from uh, what God may be trying to bring to uh, the, the church and the culture as a whole. Yeah, this has been great. Justin, what a what a just incredibly great perspective you brought sort of in the civic conversation. I know that I can speak for me. I got real fatigued of all of it um, in the last election season and just wanted to throw the towel in, which is never the right thing to do. But I appreciate this fresh biblical perspective to help us. We do have one final question for the Commodore in the room. We ask this to every one of our guests. What is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in a classroom? I think one of the great things I learned was that there are different kinds of intelligence Mm -hmm. and being able to meet people in the community who, who maybe didn't go to college, but had so much, so many things to teach me uh, that had that, that saw things that I, you know, even being in politics, people that, that had strategies and thoughts saw things that I would never learn in college that I would just never have an understanding of having those sensibilities from being in certain communities I learned that there's no community where people are just stupid, right? If you think that you're missing something, yeah. every culture, every community has people, has certain insights, has certain wisdom that you could learn from. And so don't ever dismiss people because they're uneducated or for they're from a certain culture or because they get one thing wrong, right? So for me, I can't just say, oh, you get race wrong. There's nothing I can learn from you. That's, that's, that's wrong. There's things I can learn from people that may get race wrong because I get some things wrong. I hope there's something you can learn from me. And that's just, I think that's a lesson that people, especially in this cancel culture, that's a lesson that people really need to learn that somebody can get something very wrong and something that's important to you. And still there's something that you could learn from them and, and you you won't know unless you build a relationship. That's, yeah, that's good. That's, that's really amazing. Good. Justin, it has been a joy, man. And I'm so glad that our paths have crossed again. And I'm looking forward to having them cross many more times, I hope in the future. Hopefully at the Pancake Pantry at some point. (laughs) That would be good. uh, Hey, I did not butcher your name. So that's, (laughs) (laughs) and I did a good intro this time. But anyway, hey, thanks again for so much uh, for being on the show. And as we like to say here at the Leadership Drip, you've always got a seat at the table. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me, guys. 
Hey friends, thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.